We are back for another week in SAS with the official SASTA podcast brought to you by me, Harry Stebbings, at H Stebbings on Snapchat, and the main man, Jason Lemkin, at JasonLK on Twitter. And if you'd like to meet me, Jason, and some of the top SAS execs in the world, then all you have to do is come and hang out with us at SASTA. More specifically, though, than hang out, have mojitos with us, and all you have to do then is purchase your SASTA 2017 tickets with the promo code DRINKSWITHHARRY, and not only will you get an incredible 20% off the ticket price, but Jason has very kindly agreed to pay for a free happy hour of mojitos so a huge thanks to him for that but it'd be great to see you there but to the show today and i'm thrilled to welcome matt mckinnis now matt is the founder and ceo at inkling the company that brings policies and procedures to life for your desktop workers and the company has backing from some of the best investors in the world with the likes of sequoia capital felicis and kapoor capital backing them as for matt prior to inkling he spent seven years at the one and only apple inc and i'd also like to say a huge thank you to taro fukuyama founder at any perk for the intro to Matt today, and I'm thrilled to say Tara's episode will be live on Friday on Sasta, so stay tuned for that. However, enough from me, so I'm now delighted to hand over to Matt McInnes, co-founder and CEO at Inkling. Good, that's perfect. Okay, I think we're warmed up. Matt, absolutely fantastic to have you on the show today. Huge thanks to Taro at Anyperk for the intro, but thank you so much for joining me today, Matt. Sure thing. Now, I'd love to get started today with a quick two to three minute founding story of Inkling and how the business really got off the ground in the early days. Yeah, I was at Apple for about seven years before starting the company and uh, knew about the iPad in advance and um, got my green card being Canadian and decided to start a company and um, had seen how people were using textbooks uh, across the sort of academic academic landscape in, in K-12 and in higher education. And so we decided that we were going to start a textbook platform for iPad. We got into doing that. We spent a few years doing it, kind of a classic Silicon Valley story, right? We built all this really great content technology over the course of years and um, kind of the business didn't really work. So we decided to find another place to use that cool technology and some things happened very serendipitously. We had uh, the publishers themselves decide that they wanted to use the platform to build all of their next generation products. And then Starbucks called and said, hey, can we use your platform for our district managers? And that was a bit of a surprise to us. So we kind of leaned in on that and realized that, you know, all enterprises, any company with a distributed workforce, kind of like Starbucks, has this challenge of communicating with their distributed workforces and want to do it on mobile, but there's no great way to get content built and pushed out to those devices and then see how it's being used. You know, a PDF on a on an iPhone is a pretty crappy experience. So we evolved the business over the course of the last few years and actually have a phenomenal customer base and uh, a really exciting journey ahead of us. From that realization, did you very much kind of transition the customer segment you were targeting towards the the large distributed workforce corporate? Yeah, it was somewhere around 2012 that we clued into this opportunity and uh, leaned in on it in 2013 and built it from zero in recurring revenue to today, tens of millions of dollars in subscription revenue over the course of just the last two and a half years. And I'm really pleased you said about numbers there, particularly in revenue, Uh, obviously revenue driven by sales, because I want to start today with a very blunt but problematic question for me and that's kind of the element of culture in sales so does it really matter and as i think i've heard you say before is it not just about the fucking number <laughs> to, to be blunt i told you it was yeah blunt. no it's good when you say it with a british accent it just comes across as so much more dignified um <laughs> maybe maybe with a more cockney accent it would have that that sort of american feel to it the uh the reality is that course culture is super important and it is you know all about the number but here's how i look at it sales organizations are inherently competitive and you know your, your best salespeople are 
are people who who really do care about making the number and they're really competitive and, and it's of course the top uh, priority for them. Um, they only make a good living and make good money when they make their number. But you can have sales cultures where uh, people are mercenaries and you can have sales cultures where people are missionaries. The missionaries are are better people and, and the missionary sales teams are better sales teams for the company for a whole bunch of reasons. Um, you know, they're going to do right by the customer. They're going to do the right thing for the customer because doing the right thing for the customer is the same as doing the right thing for the company. And they're going to make decisions that optimize for the long term over the short term, or at least they're more likely to. Uh, and when the going gets rough, you know, if there's a bad quarter for an individual, if there's a bad quarter for the whole team, um, people aren't going to fly off the merry-go-round just because the going got rough. And I look at sales culture and what the team values. And of course, you got to make the number. You don't want to be the rep that can't make his number. You can't, you don't want to be the BDR who doesn't make their sales calls. You got to, you got to do that. But when you've got that plus a sort of passion for the business and a love of the company and a love of the customer, you get 10 times the quality of production from that organization. So I think sales culture is absolutely critical to being able to scale a business and make it through rough patches that inevitably come as you grow. And I absolutely love the thesis of a, of a missionary driven sales culture. I do always struggle though, in terms of actually just implementing a sense of competition. So how do you look to instill a competitive element into a missionary culture that maybe might not have the kind of macho traditional competitiveness? Well, I think that there's a number of tactics that you can deploy as a leader in an organization to encourage the competition. But I think a lot of people make a mistake, and I'll start with that, which is they focus on what's going wrong. You know, you can do that, and you walk out onto the you know onto a football pitch and listen to the coach screaming at some player about something they did wrong or something they fucked up or whatever, and you can say, okay, that's the way to build competition or to make people hungry. But the truth is that the best coaches in the world, whether it's sports, whether whether it's uh, business, it doesn't matter. They focus on what's going right and they highlight success and they make people hungry to be the number one player on the team. And the beauty of sales is that you can provide this real transparency and visibility. And so, you know, at Inkling, every Monday, the, the leaderboard comes out and it talks about who had what wins, which wins they had, who got a, who got a stage one opportunity you know, on the BDR team, who's moving deals through the pipeline on the sales team. Of course, we celebrate our top reps, but the, the key is to build a culture of competition by celebrating success. It's just all too easy to get into sort of a negative loop where you, you know, you criticize or you tell people what they're doing wrong, or you hold those who are not making their numbers um, to account in public. And I don't think that builds the right kind of culture. You got to build on strengths, just like you build a building on foundations. And you've got to have a high uh, degree of visibility for the people who are doing it right. And as you said, that kind of celebrating sales successes, uh, as you sell well, and obviously are successful in sales, uh, the company moves forward and the culture changes. So I'd love to hear how you think culture fits into the hiring process for a sales leader at various different stages. I mean, does it fundamentally change? And how should leaders look to combat the potential problems? Yeah, I think when you're hiring a sales leader at any level, right? So you're talking about a sales manager, a sales director, or or even, you know, the the VP or SVP of sales, just two kinds of, of leaders. There's the kind that are obviously maniacally focused on the number at all costs uh, and who think about their function as just their function. And then there are the people who think about, you know, of course, still the maniacal focus on making the number that that's also there, but 
who think about the sales function as one part of the total machine of the company. And I'll give you kind of a specific example of how these two mindsets differ. In the former case, when a sales leader thinks just about sales, then you ask them how things are going and their response will be something about making the number. And while that's important, it sort of misses the broader picture. If you ask somebody who's really thinking about sales as a part of the total engine of the company, how are things going? They will respond with something to do with sales efficiency, or they'll respond with uh, a notion of return on capital, or they'll respond with a notion of how lead flow is coming in from uh, marketing and how implementations are occurring post-sales and the quality of customer that we're bringing to the table. There's, there's people who naturally think about the broader context in which sales operates. And when you get to you know early, early days in the company, it doesn't matter. Go for somebody who's just going to get the deals done so you can win your early customers. But when you get to five reps, eight reps, 10 reps, and you're really starting to think about sales and marketing efficiency as a metric in your business, you need a sales leader who's there, especially if you're the CEO, you need a sales leader who's right there, shoulder to shoulder with you, thinking about how sales is contributing to the overall performance of the company. Because at the board level, they're not going to hold you accountable for just making the number. They're going to hold you accountable for you know for your operating loss. They're going to hold you accountable for your margins. They're going to hold you accountable for your growth rate. They're going to hold you accountable for customer satisfaction. All of that really does swirl about uh, what happens in the sales organization. Super interesting one here, Matt. Uh, did you sell uh, Inkling yourself? And at what stage did you then transition to hiring your first sales reps? Yeah, I sort of sold Inkling myself. But you know, because of the story of our company and how it evolved, you know, I went out and did a, a bunch of deals up front. We went out and did a bunch of deals with our early publishing customers. And I had relationships with uh, with a lot of the executives that I was selling to in those organizations. And so I was able to go out and strike some pretty sizable deals kind of person to person. When we decided that we had to go and build an enterprise business, it was sort of the at that point, we actually already had millions of dollars in recurring revenue. And it was clear that we had to get a pro. We had to get somebody who knew the process of enterprise sales in a way that I didn't. So, you know, our, our case is actually kind of special. Millions of dollars in recurring revenue from just a single digit number of customers and then had a transition to selling to a much, much broader audience with a more formal process. And for me, it was just, it was key to get somebody who had done seen the movie before to come and help. So you went for the experience kind of uh, Salesforce type who had done it and written the playbook before. True, but you needed somebody who was also ready to just go and pound pavement because we, at that point we didn't really know who we were going to be selling to. And you spoke about the two different types of sales leaders uh, a couple of minutes ago. Uh, and you said kind of one has the kind of broader, more holistic vision of the company as a whole in the different parts. I'd love to talk about those different parts and kind of two in particular being uh, the sales and the engineering side. So talk to me about that. And can you have a fantastic engineering culture and a fantastic sales culture under the same roof, do you think? It is possible. It's possible. But it, 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 it's possible. There's hope it's, for us all. <laughs> so, you might, so you're telling me there's a chance. Most companies start with engineering, right? They start with product and then they build outward from there. And so you establish a very engineering or product or design centric culture. And we were like that too. We had a, almost a delicate flower organization that was sort of obsessed with the beauty and, and functionality of the product that we were building. And then in come these sort of barbarian salespeople. And I, of course, say that lovingly and with uh, tongue in cheek, but, you know, coming in and 
and saying, you know, we got to get our hands dirty. We got to sell this. And uh, the customer is asking us to do this, you know, this security thing. And the engineers are like, well, that, that, why that's dumb, right? Why would we have to do that? Nobody's going to try and steal the data, blah, blah, blah. And you get into these, these, these fights over prioritization. You get into arguments over, even at the level of, uh, you know, we're going to take time to get this right over the course of the next few months. And the salesperson just sort of slams on the table and says, I need this right fucking now. Those signs of conflicts uh, surface pretty early when you bring a sales team into an organization that has, to that point, been predominantly engineering uh, or design focused, especially if the founder is engineering and design oriented. The way that we think about this is what do those two organizations have to have in common and, and where do they need to be different? And you do need a sales organization that's going to be a little more short focused, short term focused. They've got to make their quarter. Uh, and you do have to have an engineering organization that's going to be focused on the long term. Reconciling these things is, pri- for me, primarily around behavior. You know, the definition of culture is the set of behaviors that are acceptable within a community. So you have your church culture, your city culture, your national culture, you have, and of course you have your company culture. And at Inkling, we focus on three essential character traits that we want in everybody. And this is sales. This is me as CEO. This is the engineers and the designer, everybody. And they are humility, integrity, and unconditional responsibility. What we mean by humility is that people are expected to listen to one another. Don't argue your perspective until you listen to somebody else's. Integrity is that you should be able to sleep at night with the decisions that you've made for yourself, for your colleagues, and for your customers. It's the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have done unto yourself. Uh, And then unconditional responsibility is no victims. You're not allowed to come in and blame somebody else for the problem that you're in. You can't blame engineering for not delivering something on time because at some level, you are responsible for the problem that you got yourself into, and you should study the things that you may have done differently to avoid that so you can avoid it in the future. Humility, integrity, responsibility. We rattle them off over and over again internally. They're behavioral values that we expect of everyone. And so to have a compatible sales culture right alongside an engineering culture, focus on those behavioral characteristics that you expect without excuse across the entire organization, and then let them be different in the places where they ought to be different. Do you think there's anything you can do to create a really clear path of communication between sales who obviously receive the customer feedback uh, and potential product development suggestions and then the engineering team is there anything like an all-hands meeting that can be done to create this clear communication pathway yeah so this question always beguiles me the answer is so simple and yet the implementation of the answer is so complicated the communication channel between sales and product should be captured in you're going to love this word uh, in the product process. You know, like the word process is a much maligned word, but with too little process, there's chaos. With too much process, there's bureaucracy. There, But there is a right amount of process for every company at every stage of development. And I think most startups and most early stage and first time founders turn their noses up at the concept of process, which is a little bit, a little bit silly. Process is actually very important. And so we work really hard at Inkling to have a very straightforward, just a simple but well-documented process for when and where communication is going to happen. Here's how you give feedback to the product managers. Here's where it's captured. Here's how to check on the status of the feedback that you gave. And then here are the moments in time when you can voice your concerns. Maybe maybe it is at an all-brains uh, uh, presentation. At Inkling, what we do is we do a monthly pro- 
product update once a month. All the product managers get in a room. All the sales managers get in a room. And then literally anyone else in the company who wants to attend can attend. And some days, you know, some months there's a fairly light attendance. Some months there's a very heavy attendance. But there is a forum that everyone knows exists as part of the product process to come in and voice their concerns and bring their customer feedback. And so I think it's the simple answer is have a good product process. The complex side of that is, okay, well, what is a good product process for our business at this stage and who should be involved? But that's where, you know, a CEO and a head of product and a head of sales should be talking to other heads of CEOs, you know, other heads of product, other heads of sales about best practice across their industry to figure out what's going to work for their business at any given stage. One th- one element that always uh, troubles me in terms of kind of harmonizing engineering and sales is uh, actual compensation structures. How do you look then? Obviously, sales is one that's uh, traditionally incentivized incredibly well with compensation, particularly compared to, say, engineering who don't get the, the bonuses and commissions that sales do. How do you look to harmonize that? And is it an inevitable conflict that, that just will happen to incentivize a sales team efficiently? Yeah, I mean, sales teams, uh, salespeople get paid what they get paid because that's what the market demands. And engineers get paid what engineers get paid because that's what the market demands. You know, the issue, and there's been a lot written about this, right, is, is you sort of expect in a very, very supply-constrained environment like Silicon Valley for engineers that engineers will be paid a heck of a lot more than they are paid today. Um, but, you know, the truth is that it hasn't shaken out that way. I mean, engineers are not unfairly compensated. I think uh, you can make a lot of money as an engineer. The, the nature of the job is just not the same as sales where you live paycheck to paycheck. I, I think most of the upside in account executive role in particular is reflected in the risk that you're taking on for yourself and your family when you do this job. Because if you can't make your number, if you don't make your number, you don't make any money. And that, you know, I've had over the course of my career, man, I have had reps miss mortgage payments, go into foreclosure. I've had reps lose their vehicle because they can't make their lease. I mean, I've seen horrible things happen to reps uh, when they miss their numbers. And um, sometimes it's not even their fault. Sometimes, you know, the deal falls through. Sometimes marketing isn't doing a great job. I mean, there's all kinds of reasons. And engineers, um, I've never seen it happen because the paycheck may be a little bit smaller, but it comes in reliably every week. And quite frankly, man, the engineers that I work with, I love them for who they are and what they do. And and the personalities they have make them phenomenal engineers. I would be really surprised to see those same personality types survive in the sales pit. But I'd love to dive into the 60 seconds faster. So a quick fire round where I say a short statement and you give me your immediate thoughts. How does that sound? Sounds good. Let's do it. So let's do, uh, think back to when you started Inkling. What do you wish you had known at the beginning that you know now? Oh man, I wish, oh wow. We have an hour for this. So I wish the, I wish I had understood the value of conserving cash. I wish I knew how, how expensive it was and what it was going to do if you spent cash in the wrong direction. Where, and then also I knew I spent cash the most. Oh, oh man. Again, another hour, uh, spending cash on like the desks, worrying about, you know, catering lunch the right way, worrying about these sort of Silicon Valley zeitgeist things that don't make a lick of a difference. If you've got a strong culture, and an exciting product opportunity. Just don't waste your money on any of that stuff. Just get to business, find customers, generate revenue, and protect your capital position. Don't go spending money on on the niceties that seem like they are culture. They're not culture. They're just a waste of money. And then what's your favorite SaaS reading material? This could be book. It could be blog. I would say there's a couple of things. One is I'm a student of history, and I think SaaS 
in particular is sort of overcovered as a modern trend in software. And so I looked at things like, I just read an awesome book called uh, Adventures in Wall Street. It's actually one of Bill Gates' uh, 10 books you know, that he would take to a desert island. And it's from 19, 1965, and it covers business trends through the 30s, 40s, and 50s. It doesn't sound like a SaaS-specific thing, but the reality is that the stories that you tell about how to do business, I think I, I actually said David Brooks, which was a, he's a New York Times writer. It's actually John Brooks, who is the author, but Business Adventures is the name of the book. And it's it's got 10 essays covering a really huge spectrum of topics, anywhere from the tax code to some of the first antitrust cases. It is like must reading for any startup CEO because it gives you, it just is this awesome reminder written from the strict 60s and therefore sort of stripped bare of all the zeitgeist stuff around the internet or Silicon Valley about how humans behave in business. And it's phenomenally useful in sort of understanding uh, all the ways that we're behaving today that are exactly the same as the ways people behaved in the 1950s. And then let's go for biggest, considering today's uh, concentration on sales, let's go for biggest mistake current SaaS companies are enacting with their sales process. I think they are, I mean, across the board, I think everyone is recognizing that SaaS businesses are, 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 are trying to drive growth rates that are far above their hull speed. And what I mean by hull speed, H-U-L-L, is just when a ship crosses the Atlantic, uh, there is an optimum speed for that ship to travel at. And if it goes beyond that speed, it'll get there faster, but the efficiency is terrible. And if it goes below that speed, you know, it doesn't really save any fuel at all. And so there is a specific speed at which a ship should travel to maximize efficiency. And the same thing is true of growth rates in businesses. And there's been a lot of pressure in Silicon Valley of late to just grow, 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 grow at all costs. And that sort of melted away over the course of the last year. But the truth is, is that growing a SaaS company at 50% year-over-year growth is an incredible growth rate. And that is far more efficient than growing a business at 60, 70, 80% year over year growth just because your investors are forcing you to do so. So I encourage SaaS CEOs to get rational about what the whole speed of their business is. Grow at 50% year over year consistently, conserve cash, operate at cash flow break even. That's a far more uh, sort of fun way to run your company with less pressure and also far more capital efficient, which in the end is going to translate to a higher ownership stake for the team and, and for the manager. Absolutely. No, I very much agree with you with that. Uh, moving away from the quick fire, though, and I want to finish uh, going back to the culture element and implementing something that Jim Stoneham, who's at New Relic now, told me the other day in an episode. He said, if you can't measure it, don't use it. So in terms of culture, how do you know if you've got culture and what are the symptoms of a really good culture? How can this be measured? Yeah, to me, culture comes down to the commitment and happiness of employees. And while you you can measure the um you, know, you can measure employee engagement through surveys, and you can do some of the sort of uh, loosey-goosey attempts to quantify it. Where you really understand the strength of your culture is when the going gets rough. At Inkling, you know, as I said, we're in a great spot. It hasn't been a straight path, and over the course of the last seven years of operating the businesses, there are two times when I had to do layoffs, and layoffs are not fun. The question is, what's going to happen after you do the layoff? Are people going to stay or are they going to leave? And in both cases at Inkling, people stayed. Nobody quit. I mean not nobody, but very, very few people left after we did the layoffs. And as I would have conversations with people after we did it, I would say, you know, why are you still here? What? And they would say, I'm committed to Inkling. I care about this community. I care about the company. I care about the mission. I want to be here. And I love the people I work with. And to me, that's the ultimate symptom of a good culture. You, you may not be able to measure culture every day, every week, or frankly, even every quarter or year. But when the going gets tough, 
how the team responds and whether they stay and dig in or whether they leave because they don't want to be a part of that community anymore. That's the ultimate measurement of the quality of your culture. Sorry, I have to ask, when you have layoffs, how do you uh, instill a kind of confidence in the rest of the team that the ship isn't sinking and that although we might be laying off some salespeople, there's still plenty of runway and we're still on track for break even? Do you know what I mean? Without a surefire sale of everyone leaving in fear. When you do layoffs, the result of your layoffs and how people are going to respond to those layoffs has already been determined by all of the behavior that you as a leader have exhibited for the 18, 24, 36 months leading up to those layoffs. You don't get to change your personality. You don't get to suddenly be transparent. You don't get to suddenly be trustworthy and enthusiastic right when you do a layoff. If for 18 to 24 months before you've been a consistent leader, consistently transparent, consistently enthusiastic, consistently honest and trustworthy with your team. When the going gets rough and you tell them, we're doing a layoff, here's why we're doing it, and here's why you should still believe in this business, then they'll believe you because you're not suddenly changing your tone, your personality, your style in the moment. And that's one of the hardest things that leaders have to contend with is that you have to be consistently the leader that you must be in the toughest times, even when the going is good. Tough decisions, transparency, right? All of those things that are hard to do when the going is easy are impossible to do or convince people that you can do when the going is rough. And and so, you know, layoffs are just the crucible moment that prove whether you've been the leader that you think you've been over the last two years. Matt, it's been such a pleasure to have you on the show. Truly, it's been incredible to hear about the internal kind of machinations of inkling. So thank you so much for sharing that with us. And thank you so much for coming on the show. My pleasure. A huge thanks to Matt for giving up the time today to appear on the show, and again to Taro at Any Perk for the intro. Stay tuned for Taro's episode on Friday, it really is a cracker. And if you enjoyed the show today with Matt and want to stay in the world of Sasta, then you can follow me on Snapchat at hdebbings, and Jason Lemkin on Twitter at JasonLK. Likewise, do not forget, if you want to hang out with us at Sasta Annual 2017, then all you have to do is enter the promo code DRINKSWITHHARRY when you'll purchase your tickets, those three words, DRINKSWITHHARRY, and you'll get a whopping 20% off the ticket price and a free happy hour of mojitos courtesy of mr jason lemkin very kind of him as always we so appreciate all your support you can always email me harry at the 20 minute vc.com and i'm very excited to bring you friday's episode with taro